You probably know by now, if you come along, that it's one of my favorite films. The film is Gladiator, and it begins with this incredible conflict uh, in Germania. And uh, Marcus Aurelius, Caesar at the time, is speaking to Maximus, and they're having a conversation. What, what is this fighting all about? What, why are we fighting? Uh, and Maximus is so committed to this conflict because he believes in the hope of Rome. Marcus Aurelius turns to him and he says, what is Rome, Maximus? Maximus says, I've seen much of the rest of the world. It is brutal and cruel and dark. Rome is the light, he says. That's fantastic conviction. And Marcus Aurelius comes back to him, he says, but but you've never been to Rome. And he asks him a whole series of questions, and then he says this. There was once a dream that was, that was Rome. You could only whisper it. Anything more than a whisper, and it would vanish. It was so fragile. It's a brilliant little conversation that goes on between the two. But I guess what it was conveying is that all of this conflict that's going on between the Germania uh, uh, hordes and the Roman army is not just to take possession of a land, at least in the mind of Maximus. There was something more important. There was the idea of a bigger hope, the idea that the glory of Rome was worth spreading about. And yet Marcus Aurelius knew the truth about Rome. He knew the intrigue. He knew the uh, political fighting. He knew the dishonesty. And he says, well, with all of that, there was a dream once that was Rome. But it vanishes as soon as you try to take a hold of it. I suppose to some extent it reflects a little bit about the whole story of Nehemiah. We cannot come to terms with the story of Nehemiah until we understand how significant the idea of Jerusalem is throughout the whole of the Bible. The idea of the building of a city which is iconic, which is not about a, necessarily simply about a physical city, although in the Old Testament it certainly is, but it's a little bit about Marcus Aurelius and Maximus' conversation. It's more than just a city of walls where people live. It's saying something. It's a communication of something. It's in the Bible, Jerusalem is the light. It's precisely what God has shaped His people to build so that it might be this iconic representation of God with His people communicating light to the world. Now, if we have that in our minds up to Jesus, we've got an idea of what Jerusalem is all about in the early part of the Bible. This physical representation of a city built on the seven hills, which becomes a light to all, of who, all who look on it. It becomes a place which represents justice and the law of God and the hope of God and the light of God. A place which is iconically emblematic 
of all that is good, because it is the dwelling place of God. And there in the center of Jerusalem is the temple, not physically the center, but representationally the center. It's the most important part of Jerusalem. And then right in the very center of the temple is the Holy of Holies, this place where the representation of God is truly present with His people. Do you see the picture that's being painted with Jerusalem? And up to the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, we find that after the, ex- after the exile of God's people and the sacking of Jerusalem and the sacking of the temple and the removal of a whole load of the goods and treasures of the temple into Gentile lands, we find that there is the restoration of Jerusalem. In Ezra, we see the foundations in the temple being rebuilt. Nehemiah is about the incomplete job being completed. This chapter is essentially about injustice in that city. That's the storyline that's going on around this, uh, this particular chapter. The city walls are being built, but I guess it's a bit like this. What is the good of really well-built city walls if inside it is as dark as it ever has been? That, that just jumps out from this chapter. What's the point of an outside representation that looks strong and safe and looks like a place where there is justice when inside there is no justice? That's what Nehemiah is getting to in this chapter. He's saying it is not just about outward looks. It's about the reality inside. Let's see how it begins. The first thing that we see is that there is oppression in the city. Verse 1 says, Now the men and the women, uh, the men and the wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. And there's three groups. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive. We must get grain. Others, were, in other words, they're hungry. It's one group of people, they're hungry. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. So that's a group who are, in a sense, putting all of their possessions into somebody else's hands just to live. And then still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children as good as theirs... Yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So that, in, in a sense, it's almost an escalating picture. Husbands and wives are portrayed at the beginning. Some commentators suggest that this is a mechanism to help us to realize that that there are those who are committed to the building, uh, but back home, if you like, it's not as though it's all well over there. Back home, there's problems as well. They've, They've actually put their children into slavery so that they might be able to pay the mortgage on their land. And now in our 21st century mindset, we look at that and we think, why? Why would you put your child into slavery to pay 
the mortgage on the land that you are then farming. That seems so extreme, doesn't it? And yet, the, the idea behind that is that if I lose the ability to produce, then I've completely had it. If I don't own the land, then, then everything is gone. If I own the land, at least I've got the possibility of raising enough money to redeem my children from slavery in the future. <laughs> in other words, the picture that's being portrayed is an absolutely critical state of affairs. It is desperate. It's horrific. I guess it shouts out to us, doesn't it? That the world in which we live is a place with the potential, even when good things are being done, for profound injustice. It's a picture, if you like, that even when the work is, is all about building this city, this kingdom representing city, even then there is injustice in the world. There is something broken in the world in which we live, isn't there? Injustice still continues in exactly the same way. The outcome of this, to give you the kind of big picture synopsis of the chapter, this is going on, this injustice is going on, Nehemiah confronts the rich nobles, they respond, and then the final outcome is that Nehemiah also makes sure that he behaves in an appropriate way. That's the big picture. And yet at the same time, what we see is one small group of people benefiting at the expense of the many. That's the root problem. That's the problem, if you like, which I would suggest continues to be the root of the problem of the human heart. I personally want to benefit at the expense of others. It's my problem. That's your problem. It's the problem of the world in which we live. The exaltation of me over others is the outcome of that. And it's only grace by God working in our hearts that changes us a little bit from that orientation that causes the world not to be as horrific as it could be. We've got this picture in this city. It's pretty evident that this particular group, small group, are benefiting to the many. We live now, don't we, in a global village. That, that's what everybody's talking about. We live in a global village. What, what is the concept of a global village? Well, I, I think the only way we can understand that is by thinking about what a village means. Some of you might live in a village, maybe a, a small village. And what you, what, what's distinct about a village? Everybody knows about everybody else, don't they? Everybody knows when such and such happens. Everybody knows who's just won the lottery or who's just bought a new car or whatever else it might be. That's what a village does. That's why we're now talking about a global village. Because everybody worldwide is starting to know about everything. That's the potential, that's the world that we now live in. In other words, the kind of injustice that Nehemiah saw in the, in the village of his city 
we now see on a global scale. There have been some shocking figures that have come out over the past few weeks. In 2010, 2010, that's not that long ago, is it? Five years ago. 388 of the richest people in the world owned 50% of the wealth of the world. Put it another way. 388 people owned the same as half of the rest of the world. 388. Our immediate response to that is, number one, we now live in a global village where we can start to see that kind of thing on a global scale, not just on a local scale. 388 people, you say. 50% of the population of the world owns the same as that. 388, that's just terrifying, isn't it? By 2014, it was 80 people. By 2015, it was 62 people. 62 people own what 50% of the rest of the population of the world owns. We live in a world of profound injustice. It continues. In other words, the injustice that we see in the book of Nehemiah, we cannot dismiss as that's just over there in the ancient world. I think that's one of our tendencies when we start to dig into Old Testament books, isn't it? We read it as an interesting kind of historical event. But it's speaking about the problem of the human condition, the problem that we live in a world which perpetuates injustice. The problem, actually, that 62% of, the pe- of 62 people, that is less people than are here this afternoon, own 50% of the world's wealth. But then when we realize that we in this room are also in the top, I think it's 8% of the world's wealthiest, we live in a profoundly unjust world, don't we? And Nehemiah's issue is this. The problem is that, yes, we live in in a, a world with profound injustice. Yes, we do. But there's something, he says, about this city. (laughs) That's his issue. Nehemiah recognizes, I cannot do anything about Artaxerxes. I can't do anything about what the Persian Empire is doing. that's, That's outside of my hand. But what's inside of my responsibility is this city. Because this city represents all that is just about the God who we worship. That's its task. That's what it's to do. Now, as soon as we start to say that, and because of the connections that we've previously put in place, we can start to see how this text has relevance to us today, can't we? We can start to see how this speaks to us today. We live in a world of injustice, The reality is we can't do anything about the injustice on a global scale. But the fact that we can't do anything about it the global scale 
doesn't mean that we don't have a task to do. So let's have a look at why the task is important. What's Nehemiah's response when he hears this? When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So we called together a large meeting to deal with them. <laughs> the language, I think, is great, isn't it? Uh, there, isn't a, there isn't a kind of, let's have a meeting and let's, let's discuss this. Nehemiah, in his role, sees that there is something profoundly wrong. And because he has been granted the opportunity to be governor of this land, he carries not only a responsibility, but an opportunity to confront this. I'm going to deal with this, he says. What does that reveal? I guess what it actually reveals is it reveals this heart, doesn't it? He, he, could, have, he could have had a conversation and, and, and thrashed out some sort of compromise agreement, some sort of way of getting around the issue uh, and trying to keep everybody happy, and yet his heart is revealed in this moment that there, this injustice is not right, not because it's simply unjust, but because it doesn't represent what this city is all about. We're building the walls and the inside is corrupt. Jesus spoke about that with the Pharisees. There was a moment in time where the Pharisees were bent out of shape because Jesus' disciples were behaving in a way according to the laws of eating in a wholly inappropriate way. And Jesus said, essentially, he said, you might have a cup which on the outside is clean, but the inside is full of filth. You're actually, you're like tombs which are whitewashed on the outside, but they're dead on the inside. I suppose in a way, in a sense, Nehemiah is confronting the nobles in this way, isn't he? He's saying... We've got the walls that we're building, but we're dead on the inside. It's really interesting, this little section. What we've read previously, if you remember, is that the nobles didn't actually put their shoulder to the plow. That's a really bad metaphor when it comes to building walls. You don't put your shoulder to the plow to build a wall. You know what I mean? They weren't committed to it previously. I actually think that one of the storylines of Nehemiah is about the translation of the mind and the heart of the nobles. They start out uncommitted. They're confronted by Nehemiah, and this is the crunch moment in their lives, in their experience of this building project. Nehemiah, interestingly, he could have, he could have said, tell me, Let's sit down. Who are we? We're the people of God, aren't we? He could have had this conversation with the, with, the, um, with the nobles. What law should we abide by? We should abide by a law which we can look. Let's have a look. Le Leviticus chapter 25, verse 34. 
35 and 40, 36 and 43, where it speaks very clearly about how we should work out interest with our fellow Jews. Nehemiah could have done that. He could have gone to the law, but he doesn't. He, re- he speaks to the heart of the nobles. He speaks to their attitudes. He speaks to where they really are. It's one of the things that Jesus does. One of the uh, teachers of the law comes to Jesus and he says in Luke chapter 10, Teacher, said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your mind, and all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. The fascinating little section that we read there in Luke chapter 10 is that we can't go back into the Old Testament and find that quotation. We can't find it. Because the way the teacher of the law responded to Jesus was not with the letter of the law. It was with the heart of the law. It was what's really going on deep inside. How do you really respond to this? Is your heart there or are you simply following the regulations? I think that can be profoundly important for us, can't it, when we come to this confrontation. Am I going to respond to what Jesus demands of me according to the strict letter of what he suggests? Or is my heart committed? Does the law that the teacher of the law responded to Jesus apply to me in the same way? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If I do that, if I work out ways to do that, I'm not responding to the law in its letters. I'm responding to it in its heart. And that's Nehemiah's issue. How do they respond when they're confronted with this? I, I love the way Nehemiah's confronted them. He's confronted them not with detail, but with where are you? It's like he said, guys, where are you? Where's your heart? in relation to these, your people. We'll give it back, they said. Verse 12. We'll give it back and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. Amen is really significant there. So be it, these nobles say. We're with you. We are committed to this pattern. It's a lovely little picture, isn't it? I can just imagine Nehemiah standing and shaking out his robes as a picture. 
They've made this oath with the priests. We, we don't do that kind of thing anymore, sort of visual representations, do we? We don't make visual representation of things that we've agreed to, do we? Actually, I think we do. In fact, I think the Christian faith actually does a whole load of that kind of thing. The two things that Jesus says that we must do are not following letters of the law, they're doing things which indicate where our hearts are. Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And He says, when you meet, when you gather together, take bread and drink wine. What is that? Is it all, all of us going away and learning by rote a whole set of laws and words so that we can come back and be tested and make sure that we all agree? Or are we doing something which is a physical act which essentially says, Amen? That's what communion is. We've been sharing that over the next period of time, we're going to be, we're going to be moving communion onto a Sunday. I think that's great in lots of ways. And I think it's a massive challenge as well because it places us just like these nobles in front of a question of divine significance, of God's significance, of eternal significance. It's as though Nehemiah is saying to the nobles, are you committed to this? Not before me, before God. So he gets the priests, they make an oath. And he shakes out his clothes in a physical representation that they're committed to it and they say, Amen. And then when we take communion, what does that say? It says, I believe that the body which is broken applies to me. I believe that. I believe that Jesus died for me. Communion is not just a simple act. It's not a ceremony which we get to take part in. It's us saying, Amen. It's us saying, yeah, I take that. I eat that bread. I drink that wine. I do something because I agree with what we've just committed to. I'm excited about the idea of us being able to share that together. And I'm also saying, here's a moment where it paints a picture which is of profound significance about doing something, which is a statement of agreement. And the New Testament calls us to do that. It says, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> when we share together, when we eat that bread, drink that wine, I'm saying amen to what Jesus is for me. Wow. I also love this. I don't know about you. I, I, you might be one of the really blessed people who can memorize the Bible. I, I, I envy you. I am, I am as best as I can be in a kind of justified way covetous of your gift because <laughs> I cannot do it. Let me just say, it's not just the Bible. I can't remember anything. Like, I can't remember strings of words. Rachel laughs at me because I can't remember verses to songs. 
You know the way you say, well, if you learn it in song, you'll remember it. Yeah, that applies to lots of people, but not me. It's just great to be it. But if, if the Christian faith was all about being able to remember and recite and pass a test and reach that, if you like, that intellectual ability which says, yes, you're good enough, then I'd fail. But I love the fact that the Christian faith is about doing a really simple thing which says, Amen. It says, I believe that Jesus died for me. It's what it's about. Was Nehemiah simply demanding for the sake of building the walls? Absolutely not. What we find out, we're not going to cover it in great detail, but from verse 14 to 18, we find that actually he behaved in a way which was consistent of what he demanded of others. There was a sincerity in the way that Nehemiah behaved. He was consistent. He didn't demand what he could demand. He gave of what he could have had for the sake of the building of the, of the wall. The problem that he sees is not a new problem. In fact, in verse 15, we read this. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. There's his heart. He could have done it. As the governor, he could legally have done it. The problem had been there for a long time, but he changed the tide of behavior. What a powerful thing that is. What an amazing thing that Nehemiah did. He changed the tide of behavior. He said, from this day forward, this is the way the governor is going to be. I don't know whether that's the way the governor did continue. Certainly by the time we see Herod, we see profound injustice has reoccurred in Jerusalem. But certainly for Nehemiah, he said, right, from now on, the city is going to be right. But his faithful action was not just assertive words. Verse uh, 17. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Every day, one ox, six choice sheep, some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were too heavy on these people. I love the heart of Nehemiah. He's genuine, isn't he? Sometimes the Bible's way of communicating to us, the way that we should have a heart for others, is by simply putting up in front of us a picture of how it is to be. You say, haven't some of us benefited from that in the past, that we actually, we've learned how to be because we've had great examples. They're not perfect, they're not sinless, but they've been a great example. 
That's what Nehemiah is for us. He's saying, okay, we don't have to worry about mortgages and all of that kind of lending, but is our heart the kind of heart that cares for this body of people? Here's the, here's the transfer. The model is quite simply this. The demands of the city that was being built become the demands of the kingdom that Jesus has constructed. Do you remember when the key words in, in, in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you are the city on the hill. He's using language there which just connects with Jerusalem. He says, this is, you are now this. In other words, all of the demands that have gone before for justice now live with us. We need to live in this way. We need to live with a care and a compassion and a love which, which is expressed, I guess, most helpfully. Let, let's have a look at the way it's expressed. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. Now, this is written in a particular age, and we need to work out how to translate it to our day, but 1 John 3, 17 says this, If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? what it says. We are living in incredible days, aren't we? We've got all sorts of political stuff going on. We can't change a whole load of that stuff, but we are called to the kind of love that is expressed in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17 where John makes it really clear, if we don't care, he's really, he uses almost uh, a kind of grand language to say, how can God's love be in you? <laughs> Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. We see another connection. If Nehemiah is concerned that we show the love, he's also concerned of why that love is shown. He's concerned because he's making a statement that it's all about the representation of this city to the Gentiles around. Look at what it says in verse 9. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. In other words, one of the accusations that potentially could fall on this city is, you're behaving like that, and you're claiming to be the city of God. Hmm. Galatians says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those belonging to the family of believers. We've got to do it because it's mission. Jesus says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. Our love for each other is not a cozy, cutesy thing. It is a deep, real love because of the people of God that we claim to be and because it displays to the world around that it is true and it is genuine. 
pretty hard, this, isn't it? It's pretty tough. It's a bit of a confrontation that Nehemiah makes. A bit of a confrontation that the Bible makes. Let's just close with this. How does Nehemiah close it? <laughs> Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. It just seems it's from his memoirs. Basically, that's where the book of Nehemiah is taken from Nehemiah's memoirs. It says that just remember me because my heart has been for these people. In a sense, he's placed himself as a temporary savior to the people. He's placed himself in Jerusalem. He's built this city and he's become a savior. But in another sense, Jesus repeats that kind of thinking for you and me. John chapter 17 and verse 4 says this, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Nehemiah has gone and he's done the work that God has appointed him to do. Jesus came and he does the work that his Father has appointed him to do. The work of saving you and me. And then he says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. He kind of says, remember me for what I've done for these. But the great thing is, it's not just a temporary salvation that Jesus brings. It's an eternal salvation. Nehemiah does it temporary, and Jerusalem becomes corrupt again. But Jesus creates a city which is pure. And, and, and John says, if, if you don't do this, then the love of God can't be in you. And I look at that and I think, I haven't loved the way I should love. Therefore, the love of God can't be in me. And then I say, but Jesus has the kind of love which is perfect. Which creates an eternal, justified, beautiful Jerusalem. At the end of the Bible, what do we see? A new Jerusalem, which is what? You and me living there. Not because we deserve to live there, but because a Savior has come and He's built that city and He's done the work and He's been remembered by His Father for all that He has done and you and me get to be in that new Jerusalem for all of eternity in peace and safety under God's rule, under God's law for all of eternity and without any demands which are any more uncomfortable, without any tears, without any pain. And it is because that great eternal Savior completes the work that Jerusalem represents on a temporary basis. And the issue, I guess, is quite simply, are, can we say, I believe that, <laughs> and therefore, when in a few weeks we share communion together, can I say, I eat this bread and I drink this wine, and I say, Amen. That's the question. We're going to sing a closing song, which speaks about a city. I've been thinking about these words, and I've thought, actually, in a sense, there's more to be done in this city. If we think about the city of God, 
then we talk about a global city, don't we? 